Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us as a means of our understanding who you are and as a means of us understanding how you call us to live. And so I pray that you would help us to look at this text and to take it on board, take it into our hearts and minds that God, by taking it on board, we might live lives that glorify you in everything that we do. And that's our greatest prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, when I was in high school, which is now a very, very long time ago, as I'm reminded by my high school-aged children, uh, when I was in high school, I loved science. I love science. I still love science. I love learning about how the world works and how things are going on. I love looking at stuff about space. I love science. I love biology because I like systems. I love to look at the ecosystems and even the way that, you know, anatomy and the way that all of our systems work together, all the different animals, all the ways that the intricacies of it all make life. I like, I like learning about that. I like physics because in physics there were formulas and formulas would help me to understand how something worked. I could understand the mechanisms of the world that I lived in through formulas that I could write down on a piece of paper and I could figure stuff out and I loved that. I loved science. I also dropped chemistry. I dropped chemistry like a bad habit. I dropped chemistry because it was first block in the morning every day and if I dropped it I could sleep in every single day Monday to Friday. I said I love science. I didn't say I was committed to science. I didn't study science uh, after high school because it's hard. Study theology instead. <laughs> I didn't study science after high school, but I do love science. I love science, and I don't think the study of science and the study of our world that God has created is in, in any way, shape, or form at odds with the study of the scriptures and the Christian life. I don't think it's at odds at all. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think if you are studying the way that God's creation works, it is going to lead you, if you study it well, it is going to lead you to the reality of a creator. And so I think science is fun and I love to learn about it still. The point that I want to make is that science is good, but science has its limitations. I like science. I don't think it's at odds with our faith, but science has limitations. And every good scientist knows this. Every good scientist knows where their expertise stops and they know where their data takes them. But they don't go beyond there because they know what they know. And because they know what they know, they know what they don't know. Science has limitations. Science can tell us how something works and how something came into being, but science cannot tell us why something works or why something came into being. And that's an important distinction to make. To quote one of my professor friends, who also thinks very highly of science, he said, science is informative, but it cannot tell us what it all means. It cannot, he said, as science, tell us everything about who we are and certainly little about how we should live, how we should treat other creatures on the planet, how we should hope 
and so on. In other words, science is not able to help us with a whole host of human questions to which we desperately need answers if we are going to live our lives well. So science is good because it tells us how things work, but anytime science tries to tell us why something works, we know the scientist who is communicating that truth to us has gone beyond their area of expertise. And that's why we need something called metaphysics. Now, all the philosophy majors in the room got very excited. We're talking about metaphysics now. Some of you don't know what that means. That's okay. It just means beyond science. Metaphysics. Beyond the physical. Not beyond science. Beyond the physical. Physics deals with how the universe works, but metaphysics deals with why the universe exists. And we need to know which category we're in at which time we're having our conversations. And this is my point. If you think the physical world is all that there is, that there is nothing beyond the here and now of our world. You think that you live and then you die and that's the end. If, if you think that, you are going to live a very different kind of life with a very different kind of principled and valued way of being. You're going to have different moral structures and moral frameworks in your life. If you think there's this life, that's all there is, it's over when you die and there's nothing beyond that. If you think that's true, you know, live very differently. And that's part of the problem that Paul's dealing with here in this text. It's part of the problem of what he's looking at in this text because in the church in Corinth, there were a group of people who denied the resurrection of Jesus. They believed that when you die, the end. The reason we have this part of this letter is because there was a group of people who were struggling with what they believed about the nature of the resurrection of Jesus and what that then has uh, then does to our lives, the implications of that for our lives. So he's trying to show them that a denial of the resurrection has some serious consequences to how you live your life here and now, and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus should inform the way that we do everything, because when the resurrection of Jesus touches an area of your life, it transforms it. And that's what he's getting at. And this is what our text comes down to. If you deny the resurrection, how the heck are you supposed to know how to live? You can know how everything in the universe works. But if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you don't know why you should live. You just know how things work. And we need to recognize what we're looking at. Church in Corinth had all of their hopes wrapped up in the here and now of life because they thought the here and now was all they had. And he's correcting them to help them see that the resurrection of Jesus means there's much more. Look at the text we were in a few weeks ago, and, and I think it'll help us to set up where we're going today. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. It says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 16 says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are, of all people, most to be pitied. And then he goes on, and we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks, and he explains the fact that Jesus is raised and the implications of the resurrection for our lives. And then we get to the text that we're in today. In verse 29, it says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. 
What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, verse 29 is a weird verse. Look at it again, because it's odd. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, weird text. Strange text of scripture. Okay, we don't do this. Just, I just want to be super clear. If you say, Easter's coming, we're doing baptisms, I got this person in my family tree who I'm not super sure about. 118 years ago, they died, but I wasn't, I'm not really sure if they were Christian. I'd like to be baptized on their behalf. I'm just going to tell you right now, don't email me that. We don't do that. That's not our team. We don't do that. The Bible actually in nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that you should be baptized on behalf of or for the dead. I'm going to say it one more time because I don't want any emails this week. We don't believe that this is something you do. Paul is actually not saying that you should do this. That's not why this passage is here. I'm going to explain why this passage is here, but he's not putting this in his letter to the church in Corinth so that we will be baptized on behalf of the dead. He's not saying that. You look concerned. Do I need to go one more time? That's not in the Bible. It's not taught anywhere in the Bible. It's not a practice we should participate in. Let that be uh, you know, stated clearly for the record. Now, why is he talking about that? Well, evidently, there was a group of people in Corinth who thought this was a good idea. They were baptizing people on behalf of the dead. It's not something he's teaching them they should do. He's just mentioning it because there were a group of people who were doing it. And the reason they're doing it is not super clear. The point he's making is clear. Okay, the reason they're doing it is not super clear, and anyone who tells you they have great clarity on this text and they know exactly why the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago were baptizing people on behalf of the dead, anyone who knows, they don't. I've read all the scholars on this. I, I, read, I read 15 scholars on this this week, and there's about 18 options on why they're doing this. We don't know. That's not the point of the text, though. The reason they're doing it is unclear. Paul's point of utilizing it in this passage is actually very clear. Baptism is an identification with the work of Jesus in your place and how your faith in his finished work, how that means that you can then be buried with him in baptism as he died and was buried, and then you can be brought up out of the water in baptism as he is resurrected from the grave and he is alive. Our identification with Christ in baptism unites us in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The point that Paul's making is, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, why on earth are you baptizing people anyways? That's his point. His point is, why are you participating in baptism in any way, shape, or form, and even in your weird way, shape, and form? Because the nature of baptism itself is an identification with the resurrected living Jesus. So his point is, kind of like a judo flip. You ever watch judo? I love judo. Judo is cool to watch. It's only really on in the Olympics and if you like YouTube. That's where you find judo. Judo is a martial art and it's just about throwing people on the ground, which is pretty cool. And what you do in judo is when somebody charges at you and they, they, they're coming at you, they try to grab a hold of you, you use their forward momentum. You step in front, they hit you here and you slam them on the ground like that. And that's how you can see cool videos on YouTube of like 120 pound women slamming 250 pound men. Because you're using the momentum of your opponent to flip them on the ground. And that's what Paul's doing. He's going like, hey, even you weirdos who are baptizing people for the dead, which it'd be super helpful if he just said, which is dumb, but he doesn't say that. 
He's saying, even you guys who are baptizing people for the dead, why are you doing that if you don't even believe in the resurrection? That's his whole point. It's a judo flip using the momentum of his opponent to throw them on the ground, which is funny. That's the point. Without the resurrection, baptism is nonsense. That's all he's saying. Without the resurrection, baptism is nonsense. Keep going, verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Paul's life has been in physical jeopardy since the day he became a Christian. We can see the narrative of his life in the book of Acts and then through the letters that he's written. Paul's in danger all the time. Why? Because Paul came to believe that Jesus was alive. And then he gave his life to proclaiming that message for the rest of his days. And everywhere he went, he proclaimed the resurrected Jesus. And everywhere he went, there was some kind of uproar and a threat on his life. Just this missionary journey that he's on when he gets to the city of Corinth, which is kind of in the southern part of Greece. When he comes on to the European continent for the first time, he goes to the city of Philippi, which is in the northeast part of Greece. And he goes to Philippi, and guess what? He preaches the gospel. What does he preach? That Jesus Christ died and is raised. He preached the resurrected Jesus. And what did they do? They beat him, and then they threw him in prison. Then once they realized he was a Roman citizen, they kind of awkwardly let him out of jail and said, sorry about that, probably should have given you a trial first. And they let him go. And he left the city of Philippi, and he went to the city of Thessalonica. And in the city of Thessalonica, he goes and he preaches the resurrected Jesus. And preaching the resurrected Jesus gets a response from the community of people who were already there living in Thessalonica, and they did not like it. And so they have a big mob that forms, and the mob comes after him and tries to get a hold of him. And the followers of Jesus in Thessalonica talk to Paul, and they convince him that he needs to leave under cover of night. And so at nighttime, he heads out of the city, and he leaves Thessalonica, and he goes to a place called Berea. And in Berea... He continues to preach the resurrected Jesus. And guess what? The mob from Thessalonica are still ticked off and they find out that he's in Berea. So they show up in Berea and they go, we're here. We're here for Paul. And the people who had come to believe the gospel in Berea hear about this and they put Paul on a ship and he sails to southern Greece to the city of Athens. And in the city of Athens, Paul gets up and preaches the resurrection of Jesus. And when he preaches the resurrection of Jesus, there's three responses. One, some believed. Two, others mocked him. And three, some said, I'd listen to more about this. They mocked him. He preached the resurrection and he was mocked for it. He then heads about an hour's drive today from Athens. He heads west to Corinth. And when he gets to Corinth, what does he do? Spoiler alert, he preaches the gospel of Jesus And he preaches that Jesus is risen from the dead. He preaches the resurrection of Christ. And what happens when he's in Corinth preaching the resurrection of Christ? People start to get a little bit upset. And they were upset enough that Paul became afraid. He was so afraid that God had to speak to him in a vision in the night that said, you're safe in this city. I got you. God speaks to him. You can stay here. It's okay. And so he stays there for like 18 months. His point is he is constantly threatened with death as he risks his life to proclaim the gospel. And then beyond that, he's dying daily. 
even as he lives and preaches the new life in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says he's worked harder than anyone and he says that he's had more imprisonments than anyone and he's had countless beatings because of the gospel and he's been often left near dead. And then in verse 24 of 2 Corinthians 11, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And you go, why is he doing this? Because he believes in the resurrection that they are denying. And it has so transformed his life and so touched every area of his life that he's willing to endure all of that and more because Jesus is alive. See, you can't kill someone who knows that the worst thing that could happen to them is that they die. Because it only gets better from there. Paul believes in the literal resurrection of Jesus. And he believes that Jesus' bodily, historical, physical, literal resurrection means he too is going to be raised to new life and he's going to spend eternity with God. So he's like, you can beat me. But like, I'm not that worried about it. You could kill Paul. And if you're trying to kill Paul, he's going to go, yeah, okay. I know what's to come. Do you believe in the resurrection? His point with the church in Corinth is that they only know about Jesus because he risked his life daily to bring the gospel to them. It's the only way they even know there is a Jesus. is because the guy who got beaten all the time in every other city showed up in Corinth to tell them about him. When Jesus was explaining to his disciples, because Jesus talked to his disciples about his death and his resurrection several times. Now, I think it's because God just veiled their understanding, but it seems that they missed it every single time he talked about it, which is one of the most beautiful things about the Gospels. I've been in my devotions this week in the Gospels, and it's just so wonderful because I just am so like them. Like, I just miss it so often. And I look at them and I go, well, if they can make it, I guess I'll be okay. Matthew chapter 16, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus had just finished talking about the fact that he was going to suffer and die and then be raised on the third day. And then he gives them this text. Why? Because his suffering, his death, and his resurrection have immediate implications in the life of every single one of his disciples. And he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Paul knows that. He dies to himself every single day so that he can live to Christ. His whole point is that without the resurrection, risking your life and dying to self is total nonsense. I said without the resurrection, baptism is nonsense. But without the resurrection, risking your life and dying to self is also nonsense. Hey, look at the next verse in verse 32. He says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And when he took the gospel to the Ephesians, he shows up in the city of Ephesus and he starts to preach the gospel. Guess what he preached? He preached that Jesus was risen. 
And guess what happened when he preached the resurrection of Jesus in the city of Ephesus? When he preached that Jesus is Lord and that he is risen and alive, that actually disrupted the economy of the city. Their economy was around, a, a, a segment of their economy was around the worship of a God in their city and about the idols that they were making so that you could take that God S, God S, home, and you could put it up on your mantle and you could go, I worship you. I'm not exactly sure how the idolatry worked, but that was essentially what's going on. And what happened is when they started preaching Jesus, all of the silversmiths became very concerned that the gospel would disrupt the economy. This is Paul preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Touches every area of life. So what happens is there's a big riot full of people who are like, we don't want this foreign God being preached in our city. And they're rioting in such a way that the legislators and governors of the city come out and they're like, hey guys, you're going to need to tone it down a little bit. Because if you keep rioting like this, the Romans are going to send the military in and they're going to squish us. Because what looks like is going on here is some sort of overthrow and upheaval. That's the intensity of the riot that was going on. So the riot gets calmed down, it finishes off, and then guess what? The, the believers in Ephesus go, Paul, you should probably go. You should probably go to the next place. So he has to leave the city. And I'm just saying all of this to say, without the resurrection, preaching the gospel like this is nonsense. Without the resurrection, baptism's nonsense. Without the resurrection, dying daily to self and, and risking your life is just nonsense. And without the resurrection, preaching the gospel like this doesn't make any sense. But his whole point here summed up with a statement. Do you see the logic of what he's saying? All of that stuff doesn't make any sense unless you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And, and then he says, in effect, let me show you the consequence of your thought of denying the resurrection. I'm going to show you the most consequential thing that can come if you deny the resurrection. It says in verse 32, the second half of verse 32, it says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The logical consequence of denying the resurrection is that this is the pinnacle of your worldview. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is a well-known phrase in most of the Greek world, and it um, surely would have been known by the audience he's writing a letter to in the city of Corinth, was, which was a very philosophically aware city. They had a lot of philosophy happening in their city. They certainly would have been very familiar with this phrase. They would have been familiar with it for one of two ways. One, because they just knew about it in the culture, which I think is probably true. But I think they would have also known about it because it's referenced in Isaiah 22. This phrase is referenced there. And I think Paul, probably when he was in Corinth, taught them about this. It says in Isaiah chapter 22, In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. That's what the prophet is saying. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for, until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. And you go, that's crazy. That phrase is used in Isaiah 22. What was going on in the context of Isaiah 22 that makes that so meaningful? Here's what's going on. The people of God were under judgment. God had spoken to them through his prophets and they had not repented from their sin. They were, I think it was the Assyrians who were like on the door. The Assyrians were a wickedly destructive army and, and God was going to allow the Assyrians to come in and to squish his people because they were not repenting. 
They were not turning to him and worshiping him and him alone. And so there's this whole thing going on in Isaiah that leads up to this passage in Isaiah 22. They weren't repenting from their sin. They weren't changing. Even when they knew the judgment of God was on their doorstep, they weren't changing. Look at the passage again. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning. That's what he says should happen. For baldness and wearing sackcloth. That's like a sign of repentance. It's the outward sign of your repentance. Verse 13 says, and behold. And that means instead of the weeping and repentance that you should have shown. It says in verse 13, instead of that, there was joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. What did they do instead of repenting for their sin? When the army was on their doorstep, they were like, we're done. It's over for us. We should have a party. That's what they did. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. So whether the church in Corinth knew about it from Isaiah 22 or they knew about it from what is called Epicurean philosophy, they knew about it. They knew this phrase. It was the Epicureans who popularized this phrase as a central feature of their philosophical worldview. See, if you think that this, all around us, is all there is to life, and you've kind of got this mindset that there's nothing beyond this life, there's no future beyond this, then you can't ascribe any actual meaning to anything you're doing in life. You can't find any meaning in suffering. You can't find any meaning in anything. And if that's the case, then even the threat of death itself will not turn you to God. That's the Isaiah passage. Therefore, have a party. That is the logical conclusion of a worldview absent of the resurrection of Jesus. See, Epicurus actually taught that you shouldn't fear death. Now, you've got to remember, he lived in a world that actually was confronted with death on a regular basis. Our world, we've taken death and we've put it off in the corner. We've relegated death to hospitals, palliative care wards, nursing homes. So we're not confronted with death on a daily basis like the world of the Corinthians would have been. So Epicurus taught that you didn't have to fear death. And, and here's why. He said death, this is actually what he said. He said, you can't, death can't touch you until it does. And then it doesn't matter anyways. So why are you afraid of it? Why? Because they taught that there was nothing beyond this life. Epicurus and the Epicureans taught that when you died, that was it. It's over. There is no afterlife. So he says, don't be afraid of death because as soon as death comes for you, then you'll be dead and it won't matter anymore. Kind of a hollow worldview. Kind of empty to help people in either life or death. How are we living? Functionally. Are we functionally living like this is all that there is? See, without the resurrection of Jesus informing the way that you live your life here and now, 
you're going to default to behaving like this is all that there is. Without the resurrection of Jesus, a self-sacrificial life, it just doesn't make any sense. Like if this is all that there is, why would you sacrifice anything for anyone else? Why would you live in danger at every hour? Why would you die to yourself every day? Why would you bother with the trials that come from living a Christ-centered life? Do you know what makes all kinds of sense? If there's no future hope, if there's no resurrection of Jesus, and if this is all that we have, do you know what makes perfect sense? Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Like, I'm all in on that if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true. So, like, I can see a few of you smirk because you probably came to Christ later in life like me. Like, I know how fun it was. The resurrection of Jesus has to touch every part of your life so that your life is actually transformed. If there's no resurrection of Jesus, can I just tell you, I'll lead you back to what I had before I came to Christ. It was a blast. It's very destructive. See, some of you don't get this. I was a way worse person than you think I was. I know all that stuff. I know how to get there. That is, that is a worldview that makes sense to me apart from the resurrection of Jesus. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die was basically how I lived the first 20 years of my life. What makes sense if there's no resurrection of Jesus is a self-indulgent life. And you, you just have to remember this statement itself is embedded deeply within a philosophical worldview that says there is nothing after death. You die and it's the end. And that's why he's using this statement to them because they know that. Here's the caution to you. Craig Blomberg said it like this. Self-indulgence is the consistent outgrowth of a material philosophy that denies the resurrection life. The Epicureans of old did not usually interpret their slogan as a call to sheer gluttony and drunkenness. Rather, they sought the good life, cultivating the arts of fine dining, music, and theater, and treasured friendships. Yet ultimately, all of this was self-centered since they did not look to continuing any pleasures beyond the grave. Self-interest may even lead to humanitarian and altruistic concerns, but ultimately it produces nothing permanently satisfying if this life is all that exists. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It is hollow and it is empty and it can't help you in life or death. It says this is all that there is, so you might as well enjoy it. In Christ City, you need to know there's more to all of life than this. You need to know. Without the resurrection, it's all nonsense. But with the resurrection, every single thing has meaning. With the resurrection, every single thing has meaning. If you're lonely right now, in the resurrection, you'll find contentment. You'll be content and satisfied. If you're sick, in the resurrection, you'll be made whole. If you're scarred and broken and abused or in pain, you will be healed. If you're weeping now, the one who lives now and forevermore will wipe away every tear. If you're sorrowful in the resurrection, you will exchange that sorrow for joy. 
The Beatitudes say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. It's a promise. See, only a resurrected Savior who was alone and abandoned can promise you contentment in place of your loneliness. You need to know that he understands. See, only a Savior who was broken and abused and was beaten and left scarred and who suffered pain and death can promise that you will one day be made whole. Only a Savior who was sorrowful to the point of death and who wept over those who rejected him can promise you everlasting joy in place of your current sorrow. And only a Savior who defeated death in his resurrection to new life can promise that there is more to life than you see here and now. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. In Christ's city, that means that a self-sacrificial life now makes all kinds of sense. It means that dying daily to self makes all kinds of sense in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It means that the trials associated with a Christ-centered life and preaching the gospel, it now makes all kinds of sense. <laughs> what we have in Jesus transcends all that we have here and now, but what we have in Jesus transforms all that we have here and now. You need to let the resurrection life of Jesus touch every area of your life. Any area of your life that is not touched by the resurrection life of Jesus will not be transformed. You got that persistent, stubborn sin? Okay, me too. How am I getting the resurrection life of Christ to touch that area of my life? Because that's how it changes. If I could change that on my own, in my own strength, I would. But I can't. And the good news is, what I have to do is allow the resurrection life of Christ to get into that part of my heart. There are those in this life who can tell us with great amounts of certainty how all of this world came into being. How all of this works in the world. But until those same people encounter the living, resurrected Jesus, they can never, ever begin to tell us why. To understand the why of everything we experience in this life, we needed a Savior who entered into human history, who suffered, who died, and who conquered death in his resurrection. And the only one who can tell us then what it all means is the one who lives and reigns over all things and promises to return and rights all wrongs and makes all things new. We need him. We need him. There's one more thing in this text that I want you to see. It's in verse 33 and 34. It says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. When he's talking about having no knowledge of God, he's not talking about like you've never heard of God. You've never heard that there is a God. You've never, it's not like you've never read about God. He's talking about you have no knowing of God. 
you have no relationship with him. You may intellectually understand that there is a God. You may intellectually even understand the tenets of the gospel. But what he's getting at is that you have no experiential knowledge of him. You've got no relationship with God. He's talking about a lack of encounter with God that would change your life. And I just want to note for you that he's writing this letter to the church. That's who this letter is written to. He is saying some of you are part of this community and you claim to follow Jesus, but some of you don't know him. And that's a hard word to hear. But I want you to think of it like this. If you find it easy to dismiss things that are clearly taught in the Bible, and I'm talking about issues of first importance, like the resurrection of Jesus, I think what he's saying here is you might not be a Christian. Like we all sin and we all disobey. But when you unapologetically reject the clear teaching of the Bible, he's saying you might not know God. And it's important for us to realize and to wrestle with this truth. He says in this passage, he says, do not be deceived. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor. And he says, do not go on sinning. But I want to show you that his emphasis and what he's calling for is not some kind of moralistic behavior change. Don't be deceived. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Don't go on sinning. But he's not saying, just simply change the way you're behaving so you can fit in with the church. Start being good moral people. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, walk in the power of your experience of God's grace in your life. Walk in the full awareness and the knowledge of your relationship with God. And that means that you make sure you're not deceived into believing a lie. Because believing that lie will impact the way you live your life. And that means you're not walking around in the drunken stupor of thinking that Christianity makes sense without the resurrection, because it doesn't. That's a horrible idea. And that means you're taking seriously the call that he puts forth when he says, do not go on sinning. Instead, we are called to walk in the power of our experience of God's grace in our life and walk with the full awareness of the knowledge of our relationship with God. And if you don't have one, and you're a religious observer, and you're a participant in the life of the church, but you're doing so apart from the knowledge or the knowing of God. Today's the day to change that. Because external religious observance without an internal relationship with God through the risen Jesus, it's just nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Following some of the moral principles of Christianity apart from a relationship with God He's saying it doesn't make sense. That's not where the emphasis here is. Without the resurrection, it's all nonsense. But with the resurrection, everything, everything has tremendous meaning. So do not go on sinning then means stop trying to live your life as if the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has no meaning. When the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead becomes the central fixture of your worldview, then you won't be trying to modify your behavior in your own strength 
what you'll be doing is repenting from your sin as you lean into your relationship with God our Father through the finished work of his Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when he says, don't be deceived, wake up, and do not go on sinning, the answer that he has is, the reason you're doing that is because you don't know him. And if you knew him, you lean into that relationship and you wouldn't be deceived and you would wake up and you would do your level best to honor him in every area of your life. What it is, is a call to repentance. And repentance is always a two-component action. It's a two-component change of thinking and living and believing. It's turning away from something and it's turning to God. You turn from something and you turn to him. And in the context of the passage that we're looking at, it's turning away from a bad theology that denies the resurrection of Jesus, which makes all of your life kind of meaningless. Turning away from that and turning into relationship with God, whereby the resurrection of Christ transforms every area of your life. And you just walk in the full knowledge and knowing of who he is. When you repent of your sin, you are realigning your will with the will of God. And when you do that, it means that a self-sacrificial life makes all kinds of sense. It means dying daily to self makes all kinds of sense. It means the trials associated with living a life centered on the person and work of Jesus, it makes all kinds of sense. There's more to life than the here and now. But when you trust in the resurrection of Jesus, it transforms the way that you relate to the here and now in every conceivable way. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and respond with me?